0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha,
1: And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is our discussion of pages 107 through 121 of A Story by John V. Marsh. There is a lot at play in this section. I'm excited to get started. Uh, so Brandon, where do you want to begin?
0: Well, I have a lot of ideas swirling around in my head as a result of reading this section. And I'll probably conduct a lot of this discussion more in the way of a conversation than in a question-answer sort of thing, just to try to circle around some of these theological ideas that are brought up in the story, the disputes that we see between the brothers, what the shadow children believe, what everybody want. But before we do that, let's just ask the question and answer it of whether or not you and I believe Sandwalker is shape-shifting at
1: all. Yeah, this is a great, simple question to start with, but I, I say sarcastically. But I do think it is a good question to warm up to the meatier bits about theology and cosmology that are going on in this section of the text. So I'll say definitively that I don't think that if I was reading this story on its own, separated from A Fifth Head of Cerberus, that I would think that there was any kind of shape-shifting going on. But since we know an awful lot about Vale's hypothesis, since that was kind of the most intriguing fact of the abbos that's discussed in that story, it's much on my mind. And so I am reading into these passages the idea that Sandwalker is calling into his own mind, right, these images of animals, the otter, a type of wading bird, and in doing so as either Transforming into those animals completely, or in some way taking on their attributes, their aspects, in a way that is physiological, in a way that is different from simply mimicking their behavior. And I'll say also that I did recently read Michael Swanwick's Stations of the Tide, which is a complete response to the Fifth Head of Cerberus. And the transformation is a lot more explicit in that story. And I think that might be influencing my reading as well. But what do you think, Brandon?
0: I'm kind of sticking by my reading of this story that the information we get about St. Anne in Fifth Head is the result of confusion and conflation and maybe spontaneous creativity on the part of David that there is some real truth in there. We've seen it come up in this story time and again. But that there's real conflation of the two different tribes, and there's no mention at all of the shadow children. And we don't really know what the shadow children's ability is. And we don't know what impact the shadow children are going to have on the two tribes of aboriginals. What is going to come of that? That, at least in part, seems to me to be what this story is about. As I mentioned last episode, I think that this feels like it is a mythic story that is attempting to restate the place of the shadow children in this culture, to use a a heroic journey to make room for this other alien group on the planet. But I think as as we get deeper into the discussion, our listeners and and you, Glenn, are going to find out, I don't know who the hero of this story is, and I'll make some... Jabs at it. I know who the protagonist is, but I think we have a lot of excavation to do in this episode to kind of get to the bottom of some of the problems surrounding the different groups in the story.
1: Well, Vale's hypothesis is based in some part on anecdotal evidence, right? That some of the colonists, some of the people who came to St. Anne, these settlers who interacted with Abbos, claimed that they could. Change their form. This is dismissed by scientists, right? By anthropologists, by biologists. Fails hypothesis is not taken very seriously. And these stories about the shape-shifting are taken to just be, you know, the folktales of people living on the edge of civilization, to use a colonial language. But I will say that I do think that in this story, I think there is something more to it than just mimicry or the learning of behavior. Because we've seen time and again that the mind is the only thing that matters, that this seems to be in very much a story about how bodies are in some ways kind of insignificant, that they're temporary, they're perhaps even transitory, and they may as well just be malleable. Why not be able to change the form of your body while retaining your spiritual or mental identity?
0: I mean, that's an excellent point. I think one thing Wolf is doing by following this novella on the back of Fifth Head of Cerberus to make this whole novel take shape that he's written out of, out of three novellas, forces us to kind of look at Vale's hypothesis in, in a different light, or to question the claims of Vale's hypothesis. One of the claims is also that they wiped out all the humans and perfectly imitated them, or at least the first wave of humans, which would be the, the French colonists. So if that were the case, who would be left to tell the tale, right? If that actually happened, all you have are these scattered reports from the frontier, from journals, bits of journals, and bits of anecdotal evidence, as you put it, of people maybe not understanding the way of being of these alien creatures. I am also just confused about their way of being, why the spirit works so differently than it does for humans, and and what that is saying about humanity. If Wolf is telling a human story, why we are in the mind of one of these aboriginals from their subjective point of view, and where it's going to go to teach us about maybe another statement on colonialism. We certainly have warring clans, but that's not colonialism.
1: And as we speculated last episode, it's quite possible, perhaps even likely that a lot of what's going on here in the these feuds between the marshmen and the hill people and also even bringing the shadow children into that mix are the result of displacement, population displacement because of the arrival of humans from earth. Unless we think the shadow children are the humans <laughs> from earth.
0: Well, before we move into the real realm of the abstract, we have also in this section a place where trees are not powerful in the way they are in the last section with the oasis and the geography, the physical place as Sandwalker travels seems to have an impact on the spiritual realities of the world, that Sandwalker can't recognize the power in the trees, in the marshes, outside of the hills. And again, we have this odd commingling of the physical substance and the, and the spiritual substance and how there is maybe here even an extension to the spiritual realm, that it does have a stopping point where some new spiritual realm begins. That's kind of what I think is going on with the with the trees here, as I'm kind of sticking to my panentheist or maybe even moving towards a dualist reading of this story in terms of this is a story about substances interacting with one another. Glenn, what do you think is going on with the trees here?
1: Well, to me, I think the question, the, the puzzle in the text is whether or not the trees actually are sentient, whether or not the trees are, to some extent, people. Sandwalker certainly treats the tree and the oasis as it's a person, they absolutely, his people anyway, the hill people absolutely believe that trees are their fathers, that trees and hill people women somehow produce hill people children. All of this could be metaphor. We've seen that an erection is described uh, euphemistically or metaphorically as a tree. And the reverence that Sandwalker has for trees could just come from a cultural sense that all living creatures are due some kind of respect, right? A a real close attachment to nature. And clearly, the hill people have a real close connection with their natural environment. But when we get to this section, and Sandwalker is commenting that he actually can't hear these trees speaking in the marshlands, that they don't seem to be alive to him the way that the oasis trees are, to me, this does suggest that we might actually take him literally, that these oasis trees or the trees that the hill people have connections with are actually sentient creatures in the same way that he is and that the shadow children are.
0: Right. And we also learned that one of the reasons, at least why the hill people don't believe that men engender children, as it's used in, in this section of the text, is that it doesn't come to them until they are old. And that phrase is used to describe the pregnancy of Sandwalker and Eastwind's mother. So that there's something about the age and whether or not the men become trees, or there's there's something going on here with a reason why there are tree fathers, and it has to do with age somehow, or whether or not the men are involved in it at all. But definitely there's some theological significance to the trees giving birth and The way they revere nature, as you put it, but also their sense of living in a creation that God has left in some way, because they need to wash the children in the river, which resembles the purity of God. And what they're washing off is the from the roots of the tree father.
1: Yeah, I think also significant here is this unfinished line that we get from Eastwind, in which he explains that Last Voice has dissected the bodies of women, probably hill people women, but we'll say abo women. And this is something that East Wind says in response to Sandwalker's assertion that trees are the father of the abos. And it seems maybe that Eastwind disagrees with that, that they have done some anatomical investigations and have found that that's not true somehow. But I don't know that we'll ever find out any more about it than that. But it is interesting to see that this too might be something of a cultural difference between the Hill people and the Marshmen.
0: It certainly reads like a kind of critique of the Enlightenment, which was a, a total move towards an empirical study from a neutral observer and calls into question, as I think Wolf does in Fifth Head, the real value of that neutral observer in the face of stories that provide us with a reverence for the world in which we live in.
1: Well, we can certainly see in that conversation that Eastwind is trying to bring something that might look like modern rational science into the conversation. And as soon as he does this, Sandwalker, who has this mystical religion that he's very passionate about, just looks at him with disgust.
0: Right. Well, let's begin talking about these mystical religions. We get a really formal religion from both of the Abo people on St. And, and the Shadow Children are kind of up in the mix of what their religion actually is, or what types of beings they are at all. But I want to remind us of the epigram of this story, which is written by the famous mystic St. John of the Cross. So I just want to read this again and talk a little bit more about mysticism once more to try to tie in this problem of substances that I keep on bringing up that I'm sure by now people think I must be crazy. But it definitely plays a large role in the fundamentals of mysticism, which I'll get to in just a moment. Let me just reread the epigram so it's in our minds. If you want to possess all, you must desire nothing. If you want to become all, you must desire to be nothing. If you want to know all, you must desire to know nothing. For if you desire to possess anything, you cannot possess God as your only treasure. And so this sort of frames the story in a way as about different groups of people trying to know God in different ways and I think that's going to come out. One thing about Christian mysticism as it relates to this problem of, of substances is that it's really rooted in the question of how we participate with God in his creation. In other words, where does creation reside? Is it apart from God as would be Dualism that God is spirit and He created a physical world for us to play in and we could commune with God through our spirits? Or is God creation, is it an idea in God's mind that we are all participating in? Is it all spirit in some way? Or is it all one substance with two modes, as in panentheism? And that strikes at the root, which is how do we achieve unity with God? How do we become one with God? And as we saw in the epigram, the answer to the question is by self abnegation by becoming less of ourselves, by desiring less, so that we can achieve a transcendent unity with God or have ecstatic visions of God. And as we pointed out, this story is, is rife with these sorts of celebrations on different levels, these reverences of these ecstatic visions through dreaming. And we know that in the myths of this planet, God was once king of the people. And it reads to me that he was king in a sense that it made it seem as though he walked among the different races on this planet and maintained a harmonious order between them that was broken when he left. And so we have three groups that really make claims about how to achieve unity with God. The shadow children don't have much to say about God, though they don't find God to be an offensive idea. We see this with Sandwalker after becoming a shadow friend saying, go with God, and this does nothing to break the bond, as it might of uh, people who were offended by this notion. But they believe that only the mind matters, which is a claim that is to say that the spirit world is the real world. We have the Marsh men who claim that they need to be close with God in a a physical space sense, that they need to be near him in order to know what he knows, and that this is achieved through going to his place in the stars to see what he sees, to have his perspective. And so their quest, in my mind, is for knowledge. And then we have the hill people who see symbols of God and and God's creation on the world, but think maybe the way... To be near him is through these symbolic ritual acts. And all of these interact with substances in in different ways. And I think we need to determine who's on the right track here and what each of these groups is really trying to get from God, because I think that's really at the heart of the conflicts of this story so far. So, Glenn, first, do you have anything you want to add to those comments? And second, do you see any obvious problems with? those sorts of relationships for these characters that lead to problems in their world.
1: Well, I'll say one thing, and then I'll propose a much bigger thing. The one small thing that I'll say is that it may be a bit simplistic, but I think for the most part, what's going on in the epigram, what St. John of the Cross is talking about is the suppression of bodily, of corporeal or, or carnal, fleshly wants and desires in order for us to become only our spiritual selves, that uh, that's the true existence of who we are, that it will be a joy for us to shed our bodies and to become purely spiritual and in doing so to achieve a union with God. Given the shadow children's emphasis on only the mind matters, their ability to even mingle their consciousnesses and create a new Person or an additional person suggests that maybe they are figuring out how to actually go about shedding their bodies in some sense without having to die in order to do it. And that's very interesting.
0: Right. That idea that only the mind matters, given that we are in a text that is pointing us towards mysticism, is absolutely fascinating. And it forces us to ask whether the shadow children are really the good guys, whether they are the people who are living on the planet who have the right way to live, and that this is a story of somehow John learning the ways of the shadow children, or the shadow children becoming a dominant culture, and that this is a good thing. They certainly seem to be higher up in like the spiritual hierarchy, if we're using this purely non-material way of being as a gauge of goodness, which I'm not certain that that's what's going on in this story. But it does suggest that there is more dualism in this story than panentheism, that there are two substances, and that it is desirable to be more of a spiritual substance than of a physical substance.
1: I think that's certainly at play here. And one other thing that we should point out about the shadow children is that although they have clear bodily needs in the sense that they are consuming food— when we see them consuming food, they seem to emphasize the act of eating and not the biological requirement of ingesting energy from other creatures. That for them, it's about getting together as a community and celebrating and feasting. And they, they almost are begging Sandwalker to join them in their shared meal because they want him to be a part of their community, a part of their group. They don't ever suggest that he needs to eat because he's about to go on a a long journey, right? And that his body needs nourishment. These are not the arguments they make when they try to persuade him to stay.
0: As you pointed out, they say, you are one of us now. And their claim that he's one of them is that only the mind matters, that he has learned the ways of their mind in order to shake extension, in order to participate with them in the spaces that hold things apart, in nothing, that word that is repeated over and over again in the epigram.
1: Well, the other thing that you brought up, Brandon, is the way in which both the Hill people and the Marshmen seem to be trying to understand what God wants or to know what God knows. But they have different ways of doing this. Uh, And I, I think probably the best way for us to Get at that is to, one, I think, start with the text, uh, go through those passages again, and then try to read this text to kind of do an exegesis on what are the beliefs that we can extrapolate out of these religious passages? What are the implications of these statements? What can we learn about the theology, the science of God, the knowledge of God that each of these peoples have, and how they? differ, where they disagree, but also what this says about cosmology about what is the universe? What is creation? What is this place that we're all living in? And again, where do they disagree on this, and, and what are the broader implications of that? And there, there are two places where this happens in the section that we've just covered. The first is on pages 113 to 114, and the second is pages 118 to 120, and of course that's the 1994 Orb Edition that you get in America. So this first one is this conversation between Sandwalker and the Blind Marshman, and uh, here the Blind Marshman says, uh, I'm just going to read this, everything is just going to be a quote, the stars... If last voice, our star walker, were here, he would explain to you, leaving the body behind to robe the stars and straddle the back of the fighting lizard, seeing what God sees, to know what he knows and what he must do. And as you pointed out last time, Brandon, in the recap, that the fighting lizard is this constellation, right? So talking about going up to the, the stars. And Sandwalker thinks that this is heretical. And this is what he says. There are those in my country who speak thus, and we drive them to the edges of cliffs and beyond, right? They execute people who have this belief, who think that you can go up to the stars and see what God sees and know what he knows. The Blind Marshman has more to say, right? He says, The stars tell God, and the river tells the stars. Those who look into the night waters may see in the ripples— the shifting stars coming. We give them, that is to say, the stars, the lives of you ignorant hillsmen. And if a star leaves its place, we darken the water with the star walker's blood. And uh, Sandwalker has one more thing to say in this conversation. It's a little bit later, but he says, you drowned flying foot, defiling God's purity with death. And we talked about last time how God's purity here means the river, right? It symbolizes God's purity. We'll get that Line in a moment. All right, I'll just catalog the, the next bit of evidence uh, for us here before we really discuss it, before we really unpack all of this. And this is the conversation between Sandwalker and Eastwind that happens in the pit, the other eye. Eastwind says to Sandwalker, You are to be killed that you may carry our messages to the river, who tells the stars, who tell God. And that is the second time that we've heard that. Eastwind also says, You will die before I and go to the river and the stars. I am not afraid of that. In my dreams, I shall float with you in places of power. I came to tell you that in your dreams, you may yet walk as a living man. And we unpacked that a little bit in the recap episode. A little bit later, Eastwind says, Don't you understand yet? Don't you know why the river exceeds in holiness both God and the stars? Why children at the beginning of their lives must be washed by it, and its waters muddied with the blood of the very starwalkers, should a star fall? The river is time, and it ends at this sacred place in ocean, which is the past, and extends forever. Sandwalker disagrees with the emphasis that East Wind is placing on the river here, and so what he says is, we wash our children in the river because it signifies the purity of God the root earth of the trees, their fathers, is still upon them and should be washed away. And uh, there are a lot of implications here. When I was thinking about this and taking down some notes, I categorized these implications in a couple of different categories. And Brandon, you may disagree with this categorization, but to me, there were implications that are about holiness and the divine. There are implications about souls and prayers and about afterlives, maybe minds, consciousnesses. We should put into that category. I think I at least, and maybe you as well, struggling to find labels for what's going on here. But this mystical, this Christian mysticism. Right, that's the epigram that we open with. There is also, I think, huge implications here about time. But I think that there are also things going on here that are pretty explicitly connected with Christianity.
0: Well, I'm really glad you read those for us, Glenn. Saving me my voice uh, for, for another day. I think one thing I, I want to start with just the most simple and basic information to make it abundantly clear that the hill people and the marshmen are of one species, right? This is why we have twins separated at birth having this experience. And this is important because we learn very quickly through what you just read that there are such hereditary gifts in these people, and I'll call them hereditary. I think it is part of this whole species being to be able to dream in special ways. There are hereditary gifts that allow some of these dreamers to project their consciousness to the stars, and some to stay rooted to the earth, or at least live beyond their physical bodies as ghosts. One tribe values star walking as a type of dreaming, and one values the interaction with ghosts, the receiving messages from ghosts, as uh, another thing, as we pointed out, in Sandwalker's Journey to to the Gorge of Thunder Always. And I think it's really important that we as people, as John V. Marshes, from a rational, post-Enlightenment world, look at this, see that these gifts of dreaming are part of the species' abilities. And what we see is a superficial fracturing of these two cultures around which gift is to be more valued.
1: Yeah, I absolutely want to take it as given, as read, that this is not some kind of religious belief or symbolic belief, that this is describing an objective reality, that this is simply a characteristic of the physiology of the abo species. One other thing that we should say that we've actually not ever said before, though it's clear here in this section, it's also significant for what we're about to do. And terms of trying to understand why these two groups have different theologies and cosmologies and what those even are, which is that they are speaking one language. they are speaking the same language. So whatever differences they have are not differences of translation or of having a different mental landscape, a different way of ordering the universe in words. It's the same language.
0: Right. That's another excellent point. I want to go through a few things that you pointed out to make a few abstractions that I think will help us organize some of some of the categories that you put together. I want to start with Eastwind's tribe, the Marshmen, and kind of abstract out a few of their beliefs. The first belief that they have is that God exists in a place. He either is in the stars or somewhere beyond the stars that give him perspective to see all of the universe. They place primacy of that vision, both on their own planet, reading the rivers is a way of reading God's message, and on the constellation Fighting Lizard, which is where the Shadow Children have come from. And this is important because they have seemed to have figured something out about where the Shadow Children have come from and what it means for them to be on this planet. And they think by being near God in his place they can attain his knowledge and his perspective. This is, in my mind, very reminiscent of The Fall of Man. So this, to me, is is potentially why Sandwalker is so disgusted by the suggestion that Last Voice has dissected women, is because they are seeking after knowledge and not after God. Their pursuit of unity with God, which which will be what I return to as we talk about this, because I think it's very important in framing their theologies, is corrupted by their primacy of knowledge and perspective, of being near God in his place, but not in his creation. And I think that the Hill people have the sense that God is in everything, that it is closer to panentheism, the sacred place of of the oasis and their value of the river as purifying all suggest that God's creation is all around them and they are participating in it as nature unfolds. It's much closer to like being near the classical mystic view. It's not perfectly holy. God is not wholly present, but his creation is sacred and, and deserves reverence, and perhaps a part of him is in everything. They, they live within the idea of God's creation. So those are just some things I wanted to point out as we dig deeper into the root of the conflict between these two tribes.
1: I want to take us about a hundred steps back from where you are right now and treat this text as if it's just something that we have found on the ground in St. Anne when we've just landed. Why we can read it, who knows. But I want to treat this like it's a text that I might work with in my day job as a historian, and just go through and build up block by block what even are the beliefs that these people have before we jump into what that tells us about the broader implications of the universe. Let's just take as given that there is information here that is about religion, that is religious in nature, that is about worship, that it is about What the universe is, how it came to be, what our role. In it is, or the role of of people, the role of Abos is in it, and let's just try to build that up as if we don't actually know anything except what these passages are. Let's reconstruct, or really, let's just construct to begin with. What is the religion of the hill people, and what is the religion of the marshmen? To me, I want to start with holiness and the divine, and I especially want to start with holiness because that's a word that actually appears here in the text. Divine is not used in the text, so something that we see right away, right, is that both people. Use the word God. They think there is something called God. It is capitalized in the text in the way that human monotheists on earth in modernity do in their sacred text, or even not in their sacred text, just whenever they're talking about the supreme creator God. But we also see that the river is also holy for both the hill people and the marshmen. Clearly, as we've been talking about already, they have different understandings of what about the river is holy and what the implications are of its holiness. Something else that we see here, though, is that there is a third component to holiness or a third object or body that is holy for the marshmen, and that is the stars, right? Uh, we get the river, the stars, and God in several passages in this section of the story. It's possible that the stars are also holy for the hill people because Sam Walker never says that they're not. He never denies that when he's talking to any of the marshmen but he also never places any emphasis on them. He never is talking about the stars in this holiness sense. Sandwalker does, however, say that the hill people kill those who claim that spirits can rove the stars and gain the same vision and knowledge as God. This is being treated as a heresy here. What's troubling about the text, what's difficult about the text is that there are several claims that the Marshmen makes, and it's not clear to which or how many of them it is that Sandwalker is objecting and saying that people are killed for. It might be that the veneration or that the attribution of holiness to the stars is the thing that is heretical. That the Marshmen and the Hill People both agree God and the river are holy, but they disagree about are the stars holy. But it is also possible that the thing that Sandwalker's people take issue with is not the holiness of the stars. They might be okay with that. It might be the act of roving, the act of going up to the stars, or the belief that such a thing is possible. We cannot tell from the text, or at least I don't think we can.
0: I think we really need to stick close to this epigram to make sense of this. And I think one thing that happened just maybe a century before St. John of the Cross is recognized as being a saint for taking up the the kind of teachings and the mystical practices that are found in pseudo-Dionysius, which is a totally different thing I'm not going to get into in terms of Christianity, is that the early Christian mystics, partially, I'll say, because they were predominantly women who were finding a new way to interact with God without an intermediary, the priest, were viewed as heretics and were often outcast from their practices. That didn't last too long. Christian mysticism has always been a sort of fringe practice in the Catholic Church. But this to me just reads like a problem of emphasis on what you are trying to get from God. St. John of the Cross in in the epigram says that in order to get God's treasure, you have to self-negate you have to desire nothing, you have to desire to be nothing, and you have to desire to know nothing. And through that negation, you become one with God. And this ties closely into a a theology of negation, wherein we don't speak of the positive attributes of God, because we can't describe God in his positivities. We can only circle them through saying what he is not. The marshmen want God's knowledge, and they want his perspective. And this is the warning against Adam and Eve in the creation story. You can eat from all the fruit of the trees, but the knowledge of good and evil. To me, this roving of the stars Makes a claim about God's position in the universe that he's no longer present on the planet, that he's not just a a kind of a wandering king like Aragorn, who is gone from his kingdom, but he'll return. You know, and this is the classic story, this is King Arthur, it's Aragorn, but it's also of, of Jesus as well. But instead, he is watching the universe, and what we need to do as a people is learn to watch the universe as well. Now, This gift of dreaming is in all of the people, as I said earlier, anybody might be born with it, but only the Marshmen value it. But I think the problem that Sandwalker has is that they think they can know what God knows, which is the ultimate type of pride.
1: Well, I do think that the Hill people value the dreaming as well. We'll see how that is. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I I think that we should zoom in on God here and the divinity. One thing I'll say before we dig in on that is that God in the Old Testament also is a dude who's just walking around on earth managing things and then suddenly he's not. This is a thing that we can easily lose sight of because I don't think that in Christian churches this is talked about in any kind of narrative sense, but it is clear in the text, in the the Pentateuch, that there is some move that happens when God becomes distant from the earth. The prophetic books of the Bible, as we encountered in Wolf's story, Alien Stones, envision a time when God's actually going to come back and be the king of the earth again. And I think that there might be some implications there that we'll want to get into. But before we do that, I think let's, let's just catalog what are actually the beliefs about God that we see in these texts. Uh, one thing that we should say is I want to talk about divinity here, or divineness, divine things. That holiness, which we just talked about, really just means to be held in religious regard or to be venerated. So it doesn't mean that you are God. Many things that are not God can be holy. It's something that you you venerate or hold in religious regard. Many religions view humans or specific individuals as holy, as worthy of religious veneration, worthy of religious regard, objects as well. But when we're talking about divinity or divineness, right, we're talking about what actually is a numinous power in the cosmos. And for the hill people, right, I think that we see that God is divine, and that God also is supreme, right? We don't see Sandwalker, we don't hear Sandwalker talking about the numinous power of anything other than God. Everything is as God wills it. Uh, The river which we've seen is holy for the hill people, seems to have only this metaphorical importance, right? It signifies, as you emphasized in the recap episode, it signifies the purity of God. It is not the purity of God itself, right? So neither the river... Nor the stars seem to be God or seem to be numinous or, or, or to be a part of God for the hill people. They have this like strict monotheism here.
0: Right, but it is that God is revealing himself in creation through this unfurling of his will and the imparting of these ritual acts that allow people to be near to him. The unwashed child, we would say, would be unholy because it hasn't passed the ritual of purification. And so that's also very important to keep in mind, is that for the hill people, this is a very odd theological point, creation is maybe a part of God in its entirety, and his will is this thing that unravels through time. So time is actually a very important thing, because God's will is only revealed through the subjective experience of time, of going through it in a forward manner.
1: Yeah, I think we've got a lot of work to do on the philosophy of time here. I don't know. This might be a five-hour episode. We'll see, we'll see how this goes. But let, let's take a look at what is divine for the Marshmen, and let's see what is different then. So for the Marshmen, to my reading of this text, God, the river, and the stars all seem to be divine, where for the hill people, it's only God. What's also really significant here is that the river seems to be supreme. And in fact, God seems to be the last of the three of these divinities. There's the river, number one, there's the stars, and then there's God. For the hill people, there is only God. But the river also matters to the marshmen because it is how they communicate with God. So God has some maybe specialized importance here, right? The river is immediately accessible, right? They tell the river what they want. And in turn, the river tells the stars. And then in turn, the stars communicate that to God. They tell God, So God is not directly accessible, but the river is, and the stars are in between. God, not directly accessible, but seems to be the intelligence function of some kind of tripartite divinity here. I don't know if that's how you read this.
0: I really went back and forth on how to read this. Uh, We can't neglect the importance of the Starwalkers in all of this, who are kind of the true figures of responsibility for this soothsaying and, and communication that the reason why the river is as significant as it is, why the river tells the stars, is because at night, the stars reflect upon the river. And through the interplay of the moving waters and the shifting of the night sky, some message is communicated either up or down. And for me, God is beyond the stars, perhaps. He is in the the firmament. So this is a very old idea that the universe is kind of a dome uh, with holes poked in it, and like we're in the realm within the dome, and the firmament is like the light that shines through the holes that are poked in it, and that's what we think of as stars. These people don't seem to have a real clear concept of the firmament because they understand that stars fall. The shadow children have absolutely complicated the theology of the Marshmen. The fact that they are from the stars breaks their cosmology.
1: Right. And they know what planets are, that they're a distinct thing. They're not described as wandering stars the way that ancients who believed that the firmament was the shape of the cosmos do. They're just described here as astronomical bodies, not in this section of the text, but in a previous section.
0: Right. And the problem for the marshman isn't wandering planets when we get down to i don't know divinity the sense of the stars being holy or or related to the divine in some way it's when a star falls from the sky and this could be the result of the landing of the shadow children at some point that this light came that they saw they were tracking for who knows how long in the sky and falls from the sky and the presence of the shadow children in their deep past is the result of this ship landing, this star falling from the sky. It really breaks their cosmology and theology. And in order to protect it, they kill the star walkers when a star falls from the sky. An asteroid, a comet flies across the sky, a star phases out, as are all natural occurrences. But their beliefs require them that some communion with the divine has been broken when a star falls from the sky. So that I don't know. I I go all over the place with this with this reading. I don't know if that was elucidating or helpful, but that's just where I'm at with trying to puzzle out what these people believe and why and from the perspective of an anthropologist who is telling this story to an unknown audience, maybe a class.
1: I was really struggling with this notion of sacrificing a, a Star Walker Every time a star falls or simply ceases to appear in the sky, I wondered how frequently does that happen? Why is that significant? But then I realized that the reason that I was struggling with that is that uh, we live in a city in the 21st century and we see about four stars in the sky. It's also the East Coast, so we only see stars about 10 nights out of the year to begin with. These people clearly see a lot in the sky. They have the names of lots of constellations, they see the Milky Way. This is a pre-industrial world. So they're keenly attuned to these stars. So this is probably something that is happening quite frequently, that even a, a small, very dim star that's very far away that we just absolutely can't see unless we uh, you know, go to an observatory in Chile, they can see with the naked eye and keep track of. So it's no wonder, right, that that would be something that's of concern to them and factors into their understanding of what is the cosmos and who made it, who's running it,
0: Right. And we also need to point out that the Starwalkers, uh, this kind of priestly class in the Marshman society are all castrated. They cannot produce children. That is another puzzling thing and reinforces the sense that they understand somehow that this is a hereditary gift of the species, that they don't need the Starwalkers to reproduce in order to have more Starwalkers. And it's a very puzzling sort of thing that's going on here with the relation between this tripartite, this triune sense of God.
1: Well, let's dig in on the Starwalkers a little bit, but maybe let's come at it, I don't know, obliquely, if you can dig in obliquely. I don't know. We're doing that. Uh, and look at what is going on with souls and prayers and afterlives and consciousnesses to understand why these rituals are happening and, and what they're trying to to do. So for the hill people, which we saw really more of this in the first two sections than in this third section of the text, but they believe in ghosts. Ghosts are real for them. The spirits of dead people are still in some way present on Saint Anne, and they are able to interact with the living. And we see this happen in the cave in Thunder always. And some living people can separate their spirits or consciousnesses, their minds, maybe their souls from their bodies and send them places. And this seems to be a skill that the hill people value, right? Because they, they value it enough to send adolescents to a school in order to hone their ability. I don't know that we learn what they're supposed to do for their people with this ability. That's not clear to me in the text yet, but it is something that they value such that even though Sandwalker seems to be maybe by his, own admission, the best hunter of his group, they actually need him to be this type of person more than they need him to be a food bringer.
0: Right. And this is what I brought up about the separation of types of dreaming. And I think that when we really understand why each tribe values the type of dreaming that they do, we'll understand a lot more about their theologies.
1: Yeah. So let's take a look at what the Marshmen think about all of this. So they value the knowledge that they receive from the divinities, and they also value their ability to communicate with God, right? We see that star walkers are able to bypass the river in this link of communication and knowledge, right? They can bypass the river in order to gain God's knowledge and vision directly from the stars. So it's only one step removed instead of two steps removed. And they're going to kill Sandwalker here so that he can actually go up to the stars and serve as an intermediary between the Marshmen and God. They talk about him passing their their messages on. It's possible, right, that this is only something they can do because of the psychic connection of the twins, that you can't just do this with any Starwalker, that you need these twins in order for this to happen. And, and the action of the story really seems to revolve around that concern.
0: Right, we have to recall that Last Voice punishes East Wind for his mundane dreaming of the Earth. And that he's not dreaming the way he's supposed to be dreaming to astrally project into the stars. And that this is a way of curing East Wind's disability as a starwalker.
1: Yeah, it's a lot clearer what Eastwind is being trained for, why his ability to project his consciousness is valued among the Marshmen. It's interesting that the protagonist of this story is Sandwalker, but I feel like we know more actually about the Marshmen than we do about the Hill people so far.
0: Really, all we get from the hill people is that they have a a skeletal priest in a cave that has special knowledge of nature to pass on to the hill people to help them with their survival. I think we also need to keep in mind that the hill people are very caught up in a battle for survival, because of the geography that they live in. And the Marshmen are on the verge of really an agricultural revolution.
1: Yeah, they are approximating something like an actual civilization. They are settled. They don't really seem to be migratory. Food is is completely abundant here in ways that it is not high up among the hills. This is really great. This is a maybe a, an enlightenment or post-enlightenment way of even reading these cultures as responses to their environment, that even their religious beliefs and practices are responses to their environments. So that might be getting... Ahead of ourselves, there's one more thing that we should say about the marshmen and spirits, which is that the marshmen believe that the spirits or the the consciousnesses of some of the people who are ritually drowned or some people who are ritually drowned in the river may, in the absence of a living body, go and dwell among the stars. That seems to be something that's available to all the starwalkers, but the ability to communicate back down to what's going on on St. Anne seems to be limited to this fraternal connection though we may just not have enough information.
0: I just can't emphasize enough the information we get about when the blind man talks about the importance of fighting lizard. For me, this whole need to be fixated on the stars starts with the arrival of the shadow children on this planet and really requires a group of people to watch the sky with real astuteness and reverence and to take their Natural gifts as dreamers. And we know that this ideal time is called the long dreaming or something along those lines. And use it to stop maybe the next incursion on their planet, the next moment that breaks their beliefs. So we know that colonists arrive at some point in the history of St. Anne. I'm really just absolutely excited to see how that's going to happen or what's going to come of these two different types of dreamings that are valued by one people that are inherent in their bodies, in their physiology, and how that's going to come to play with the, the next encounter, if indeed that is what this story is about.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you place so much emphasis on that. I totally have discounted the significance of the shadow children, even in the cosmology of either of the ABO populations, the hill people or the marsh men. We know the hill people think the shadow children are vermin, And the Marshmen seem to just regard the Shadow Children, they don't say vermin, but to regard them as a nuisance that is easily managed. They send a handful of soldiers out to corral them. They keep them in pits and they eat them. I don't think that they're quivering in their boots or staying awake at night in fear of an alien invasion, if they even actually understand at all that the Shadow Children have come, or at least claim to have come, from the star's themselves.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. So I totally take your points uh, very well, but I'm talking about an inherited tradition from a deep mythological past that is explicit in the text about the unity of these three tribes, at least, the the two native tribes and the, the shadow children, and that this time of harmony And order is what they are yearning to restore.
1: Well, I think that's awesome, because that brings us to, I think, the last thing that we should really catalog here in coming up with, what are the different beliefs that these two people have. And this is about time. Sandwalker actually doesn't have very much to say about time other than that we know that he believes that there is such a thing as the past and that the past was different and that in that time, God was the king of this planet and everyone lived together as one group, that there were not these divisions and there was not strife during that time.
0: We also know that in an unsophisticated way, he believes that the unfurling of God's will is a product of activity, physical activity on the planet, of the way things interact with one another in nature and even in conflict between these groups of people.
1: On the other hand, right, the the Marshmen actually have a lot to say about time, or at least maybe not a lot to say, but there are a lot of implications about what is said about time. East Wind says the river is time. And and you very astutely pointed out the significance of that in the recap in comparison to the sorts of things that Sandwalker is saying, where Sandwalker is talking about things symbolizing other things. Here, this is an equation. The river doesn't symbolize time. The river is time. And it's because the river is time that it exceeds God and the stars in holiness. So we can extrapolate from that, right? That time is more holy than God. And I may be extrapolating that it's also more divine, and that in this tripartite division of river, stars, and god, that the river is supreme here.
0: This really calls back to ancient mythology, where Kronos is the father of the gods. And that Kronos is, of course, the word that we have and that we get for time, right? This is the absolute pantheon sort of imagery, where time is the ultimate. That is our purely subjective experience as we go through life. We are constantly pinioned between the past and the future in this moment we call presence. And the ancient Greeks, of course, said that that is the ultimate God, though that God was usurped by his son, Zeus. And I think we have something similar going on here where time is supreme and unavoidable, but there is something that has arisen from time that is more powerful than it. That requires our communication and reverence.
1: Yeah, and I think we'll get to the relationship among these things. I think when we start thinking about how this all maybe works in terms of Christianity, and especially in terms of Christian mysticism, let's just say the other few things that the text indicates about time for the Marshmen. The river, that is to say time, ends in the ocean. The ocean is the past, and the ocean extends forever. And so, Maybe also the past extends forever, which might be a way of saying there's no beginning to anything. So time is eternal. There's never been a not time. I don't think we want to get into the philosophy of time here. I think we want to save that for a little bit later, but we are going to get into it.
0: Yeah, but we can talk about the philosophies of creation, which are ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, which would mean that there was a starting point at some point, because God decided that the universe would, he wills the universe into existence. But then there's also the creation being a perfect idea in God's mind, which has no beginning. So that's one way that they view creation as having no beginning, as eternal. And it's eternally past because they have their traditions and their cultural memories that are passed down from the past. And so the past is extremely and eternally important to their identity as a people, because that is what always anchors the moving into the future. So that's one way also to look at it.
1: Yeah, I'll say one thing before we leave this behind, which is that I don't actually know how narratively important the past is for the Marshmen. We should be clear that we don't ever hear any of the Marshmen say anything about there being a time when God was the king of this planet. That's only something we see the Hill people say. I might be comfortable saying the Marshmen probably also believe that the way the Hill people do, but it's not in the text that they do. So we should be careful about that. That's a fair point.
0: So the next thing I think we should really talk about here is the way this is functioning as a text, both in itself— but also as Wolf as a writer. I mean, we have this explicit reference to Christian mysticism in the opening of this text that you know, I've been relying on to kind of wind my way through this difficult river of theology that we're trying to navigate. The first level is that John V. Marsh is writing this. And as a result, we're expected to believe that John V. Marsh is from Earth, that he is writing as an anthropologist about a people from the past, from his own research perhaps, and that he is at least knowledgeable of Christianity through the inclusion of his epigram of St. John of the Cross and this tradition of Christian mysticism. And his choice was to include that epigram as a map of what is going on in some way in this Text. So that's one level, is that we know that there's some play of Christianity that we're supposed to pick up on from these theological discussions that we've been having. And the next level, of course, is that Wolf, as a writer, is saying something about maybe the universality of Christianity, not in like the earth globe sense, but that these Abos have discovered this religion for themselves. And so, Glenn, I think we should talk about what you see in their theologies that echoes Christianity.
1: I think echo is the right term to use here. And there is an interesting way of thinking about this in the the metatextual sense of this story being written by a character from another story that we just read, the novella that precedes this one within the novel, someone who, by very virtue of his name, is coming from some kind of at least loosely Christian background, and then of course obviously by the inclusion of the epigram from St. John of the Cross, seems to have a deeper knowledge of Christianity as well, and maybe writing this for an audience or telling this to an audience on Saint-Croix, where we know that church bells ring out, that people are French or Quebecois Catholic. So echo might be an interesting way here of John V. Marsh as an anthropologist who who has some at least cultural knowledge of Christianity, even if he may not actually be a practicing Christian or a believing Christian, he might very well be interested here as an anthropologist in the ways that these two groups of abbots, these two communities, have religious, have theological and cosmological Understandings that do have parallels with Christianity. And I suppose we should just break down what some of those parallels are. And the first thing that really jumped out to me, the thing that I gravitated to, I think a lot more than you did, is Trinitarianism. And most Christians today believe in a tripartite God usually referred to as the Trinity. Uh, But not not all Christians are, and not all Christians have been Trinitarians. We should be clear about that. Mormons, Quakers, Unitarians, among others, uh, among modern sects anyway, have different views on this. And this was also a big deal, really a massive deal in early Christianity and late antiquity. It's a gigantic part of The Barbarian Kingdoms, which is what what I work on as a historian, in which there was a a competing Trinitarian Church and a non-Trinitarian Church. And the non-Trinitarian Church often had state, favor, and patronage, even though today those would be considered to be heretical people. That would be a heretical church. And I should plug here, an interview that I did with my friend and colleague, Robin Whalen, for my Agnes podcast. Uh, He wrote a book recently, or published his book recently. He worked on it for several years about this controversy within the uh, Vandal Kingdom of North Africa. Check that out if these are things that interest you. And of course, Islam absolutely believes in the indivisibility of God. This is one of the real fundamental theological discrepancies between Islam and Christianity. In Christianity, the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think that we can see immediately, I saw it immediately anyway, a parallel here with God, the river, and the stars among the marshmen, at least in the sense that there are three divinities or abstractions that seem to run the universe together and, and maybe actually have like distinct spheres or distinct responsibilities. But I'll say, too, that there's more to the Trinity than just that there are three figures, right? In Trinitarian Christian theology, God is one being comprised of three co-eternal and consubstantial persons, which is a fancy way of just saying that they are all equal, and that they are made of the same substance, and also that they have always existed. But even though we have something that looks like a trinity among the Marshmen, I don't think that we're seeing co-eternal, consubstantial, and equal here.
0: One thing that is very different about this type of triune Uh, and triune is probably the wrong word, maybe even trinity is the wrong word, but this grouping of three, which is a very significant number going all the way back to maybe even the pre-Socratics in the definition of the universe, is that they're each a different substance. And I want to shift briefly from substance, which we've used in terms of extension, the way it's used in the text and spirit, to essence, to what the universe is made of. And each of these parts of the, the Marshman's notion of God is a different essence. The classic essences are earth, water, fire, and air. The universe is made of one of these things. And there are some great texts that explain this. I think the best one is, is The History of Philosophy by, by Frederick Copleston, which really starts with the pre-Socratics and talks about how these arguments played out around why the universe should be made of fire and why it should be made of earth and why it should be made of water and the way these all interplay. Here we have immediately these three essences. We have water, which is time. Water is the traditional symbol of the Holy Spirit in Christian Trinitarianism. We have the stars, which are fire, which really exemplify God's place. And and we also have the fact that these people burn themselves with fire And I'm not sure that the Starwalkers burn themselves. They seem to be of a different caste in the society. But this is a way maybe the men find their closeness with God is by burning themselves in the fire, the same way the Starwalkers are able to do it by casting their consciousness among the stars. And then we have God itself, the idea of God itself, which is probably something like air. And this is really just demonstrated through the Shadow Children's notion of the universe, that which keeps things apart. And maybe for the Marshman, God is that which holds things together. But it's still an abstract enough idea to be similar to air in terms of essence. And so what I see here is these three essences competing for dominance in the minds of the Marshmen that they are all potentially up for being the dominant one, though water seems to be the prime essence.
1: It's really interesting that there's no earth here for the Marshmen, but I think that we can see a real prominence of earth in the understanding of the hill people. Sandwalker actually talks about earth in these religious passages, about the earth that is on babies when they are born because their fathers are trees. That For the hill people, earth and nature, the planet itself seems to have spiritual or or religious, we should say, holiness in ways that it doesn't for the Marshmen. It's almost as if they've got a missing piece of a puzzle, perhaps.
0: Right. and Their names are Sandwalker, which is earth, man, and Eastwind, which is like spirit person you know so we have this even symbolic difference between the these two brothers in in their very names
1: yeah and eastwind is difficult there because he is actually given that name among the hill people but we can point to last voice as being, again, this is something about voice, about, about breath, which is actually just the word spirit in Latin, say. We could even then look at the names, other names of the Hill People, which are very much about the world, that people are even named after the thing that they first encounter when they are born or something about them as they are born. We have names like Sweet Mouth and Bloody Finger and Pink Butterflies, these names do seem perhaps to be very different from the names that the Marshmen give, which may also be ramped up in what they see as important in the universe and also what it is made of. What are the elements or the essences that are important?
0: I think for the, the Hill people, you're absolutely right to point out that Earth is that fourth quadrant for them. Their souls are bound to Earth after they die. They don't go out. To the stars, the way the marshman souls do. And I wonder if we are moving between, as I suggested perhaps uh, when we were talking about trees, distinct spiritual realms that are the result of the valuing of the soul in different ways.
1: Something else that just occurs to me about the essences, about the the elements here, if we're translating the Trinity here (laughs) into these elements— I think we could say that for the hill people, things that are important are God, so we'll say air, the river, so we'll say water, and trees and their environment, so we'll say earth. So, air, water, and earth. What's important for the marshmen is air, water, and fire. So, they disagree on the importance of fire and earth. That's extremely interesting. I don't quite know what to do with it because you've shocked me with this brilliant insight, uh, and I was unprepared for it. But something that immediately occurs to me is that we've just left a story that is taking place on a planet that is hell, that would have to be characterized by fire in some way, even though, ironically, it is covered by water.
0: Right. I think that notion of the the Marshmen and their focus on fire as a core element or essence of the world as opposed to earth. And that being a a negative thing, why do we read the Marshmen as bad? Because they're the same people as Sandwalker. How do we know Sandwalker is the hero and not just the protagonist? Is that that love of fire, that, that playing with fire, is accompanied by the desire for God's knowledge, which is the fall of man, which is the pride that leads to the fall
1: of man. Yeah, that's an absolutely brilliant insight. And not even explicit in the text, but somehow just implicit in the language that Wolf is giving to these characters. It strikes me that Eastwind and the other Marshmen are operating out of fear, and that that's why they're going to make this sacrifice. They feel afraid, and they need to know what is to come next. They need to be able to communicate with God. Something seems to be at stake for them in this uh, that is negative rather than positive. Sandwalker's language is all positive. He talks about the importance of the purity of God, how important it is to dip their babies into the symbol of that purity to welcome them into the community, that even though his people seem to be starving or like barely surviving in their environment, they have a kind of religious optimism or even philosophical optimism that seems to be the antithesis of the Marshmen who seem to have a real philosophical negativity.
0: That's also demonstrated in their reverence for the fact of the shadow children as beings, as living beings on their planet, the way he protects himself by arranging the the mice around himself while he sleeps, or the way they leave gifts to the shadow children as being representatives of a time of harmony and order, that they are always leaving these uh, mementos of a truce behind them as they travel from place to place. While the Marshmen seem to just corral them in hills, trap them in pits, and and eat them. And yet, in my reading, the arrival of the Shadow Children is precisely what breaks this rift between the two tribes, what what it means to them as
1: people. So just to really essentialize it, and you'll have to pardon the wolfish pun there, fire as destructive and Earth as creative—
0: yeah, I think I think maybe we've accidentally stumbled onto something here.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's the whole point of the podcast. Let's move on to maybe another way that we might actually think about what these two different groups think the universe, the cosmos actually is, which is really a way of understanding what's inside of it and what is the purpose of any of us. And this, I think, really is uh, to get into the philosophy of time that is raised here in Eastwind's monologue. Maybe the first thing to say is just, what is time, right? That's the question at the heart of the philosophy of time. And Augustine, the great late antique Christian philosopher, characterized the mystery of time in book 11 of his volume, The Confessions. He says, when no one asks me what time is, of course I know exactly what it is. But as soon as I have to explain it to someone, I realize that I have no idea what it is or how to describe it. So we might have our work cut out for us, but maybe I'll get us started by pointing out the ways in which time is significant in the Christian theology of the Trinity, just as a a way to get into this question. So from a Christian perspective, the questions about time are wrapped up in the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God, and God's role as a creator— and one question that I think everyone who's been raised in any religion has asked is, you know, if God created everything, did time exist before God created it? Or really, was there a time when there just wasn't a God or when there was just God but no creation? Certainly my Sunday school teachers did not like that I had those questions. They were not equipped to answer them. But I think that you know the questions that come up here in this story are about the philosophical problem of presentism, versus eternalism. And and the word eternal it is right here in the text. And I will absolutely essentialize this dichotomy here. And I'm going to be using the word essentialize as a pun for the rest of this episode. I am sorry. <laughs> Brandon did this to me. Presentism is the philosophical opinion that only present objects exist, and and maybe even that only the present exists. The microphone in front of me, the headphones or speaker you're listening to this on exist now, but they don't exist 10 seconds ago or 10 minutes ago. You perhaps remember that they did, but they don't. They only exist in the present. This, of course, also precludes time travel. Eternalism is the view that all things in time do exist, that this microphone, your speakers, 10 minutes ago exist, a billion years ago exist, a billion years from now also exists. And the objects that will be in those times also are in existence. And they're all in existence in the same time somehow. And this, of course, one of the problems of the philosophy of time is that our very vocabulary starts to fail us at some point.
0: Other ways to kind of think about this is in terms of Bertrand Russell's assertion of something called Last Thursdayism, which is if the universe were created last Thursday, exactly under the conditions that we experience it, how would we know the difference? And that is a question that is meant to really answer the problem of the subjective experience of time, what Einstein really called relativity, which is to say that time is a very subjective experience, but we all have this nagging suspicion that it precedes us and supersedes us in every possible way. It is the grandest abstract idea that we have, and it doesn't have a form in the way that we can imagine In the platonic world of forms, something existing. It's a very, very difficult concept to make sense of. So while it's possible that last Thursdayism is true, or, or, or how you refer to it as presentism, it's more likely that things have a course like a river. And that river does change things in its path, and that we may only know a section of the river during our lives. In fact, Kant even describes our experience of time as a river only flowing in one direction. What's troubling to me about the Marshman's description of the river is that it flows into the past, which is the exact opposite of our experience of time. There's something about their notion of time that makes the past more important than The
1: future and the past is eternal, but we get no explanation or no indication that the future is eternal or even maybe that the future exists at all. And these are extraordinarily complicated problems as you suggested and as augustine says as we've indicated already right where this problem of time and our perception of it versus the reality of it intersects with christianity is in the omnipotence and the omniscience of god right for god to know everything including the future then the future must already be real Likewise, if only the present exists, then we are living in a universe that God created, but then has to live in, even if he may have power over the things in it. And there's a suggestion, at least in this view, that God would then be subject to time. And if God is subject to something else, is he actually God? And this seems to be a problem that the Marshmen are wrestling with, in that they think that the river, they think that time is more holy than God significantly right the hill people take a very different view about this sandwalker is constantly talking about how everything that happens is according to the will of god that is god created everything including the actions that we take so god does know the future and he created all of it these are diametrically opposed philosophies of time these people are not living in the same universe
0: No, not remotely. One thing about the kind of presentist notion of creation is that the universe is being created and destroyed or destroyed and created at every moment, that it's being renewed in the mind of God at every moment. And that this is potentially also why the importance of fire is so important to the Marshman. Well, the importance of earth is The natural progression of things and order of the world is important to the Hill people. Sandwalker's clan's notion of the will of God is predicated on a lack of spontaneity of creation, that the universe is spinning out, and this is the notion of the prime move that the one who sets all things into motion will draw all things back to themselves. This is Aristotle's God, really. And it becomes Thomas's God. In a simple way, Sandwalkers' clan are of the belief that all things are set in motion by a creator, and all things will return to that creator. And so there's nothing they can do, especially in this sort of primitive conditions of survival, that will step outside the will of God. But we do know that there's one taboo, which is cannibalism. And that this hunting of your own people when you are hungry is a breaking of that will in some way. We do know that this is a a practice that is abhorred. And the second taboo, I should say, uh, is the projection of yourself into the position of God. And so with these two things, we can understand that the person is sacred as trees are sacred, and that trying to know what God knows before he reveals it in time is a breaking of whatever covenant they have with their God.
1: There's a lot of interesting stuff on in what you just said. I'm really interested in this notion that you've brought up of a, of a covenant with God. I don't know that we have any evidence that there is such a thing here for either of these people. No one seems to have a text. And the only memory of God interacting with people in any way on St. Anne is in the memory of the hill people in which they regard god as having at one point been the king the ruler of this world and that the fundamental attribute maybe a command that grew out of that was peace a lack of violence among different groups and seemingly in particular between abos or men and the shadow children and the other thing you brought up about about the knowledge, I think we're going to come back to that when we get into baptism. Uh, we'll be talking about original sin and what it is that we all got wrong back at the origin of time. But I think that astute listeners will see that we're already leaning there in this difference between these two people might rest on their understanding of what they're supposed to be seeking from God. I want to bring us back a little bit to the issue we started with within the question of or the topic of the philosophy of time, and and that is the trinity because this question of eternalism versus presentism is significant there as well the basic story of christianity is that god created the world he gave it to us to to humans not to you and me brandon to humans to live in and we didn't do very well with it so we've all been punished but later god sent his own son jesus christ born by the virgin mary to walk among us and to die And this was a means of redeeming us for that original sin. And as I've told this story, it's a chronological narrative. Time passes in between these events. This is a problem, though, because the doctrine of the Trinity maintains that the Father and the Son are equally eternal. They're equal in all ways. And there's an obvious question here, a heretical one, but obvious nonetheless, how can they both have always existed? The very nature of a father and son relationship is that one is begotten out of the other. But if they both came into existence at the same time, where exactly is the begetting happening? Or when is the begetting happening? And this is a question at the heart of Arianism, that late antique non-Trinitarian doctrine I, I talked about earlier, But that is to say, really, that the philosophy of time is important in the objections to Trinitarianism in our real doctrinal history here on earth. But it also seems to be crucial in this theological dispute between the hill people and the marshmen, that their understanding of what God is seems to be based entirely on their understanding, their philosophy of what time is.
0: Right, if I haven't made this explicit already, the marshmen are making the past primary, looking back into the past. And we know, because we are all post enlightenment, well educated people, that when we cast our gaze upon the stars, we are also looking into the past as well. And that when we are looking from the stars back on ourselves, we are looking into the past. It is a never ending abyss of time backwards. And so this is also what's going on. They view the past as primary somehow as a result of their desire to read God's messages to them that they can decode in the present but have been written in the past, right? If you're looking from the stars back on the rivers of your land in ages past, you can maybe see what God has to say to you then. This would speak to the need to have a theology of the omniscience of God, that God has written messages in the past to you for your present. This is not unlike the inerrancy of scripture, right? That God has written this perfect text, or he has breathed it into being through his inspiration of the writers of it, and that through this we can decode what we need to know about our lives. The Hill people, though, seem to be concerned about the unfolding of God's creation in the present into the future. The past is a cultural memory that will they will return to in the sense of the prime mover, but they have to go through everything first in order to return. And that is an unfolding into the future that allows for new things to arise for them, but for God to be ultimately in control. And so that is the two kind of conflicts of time I see at play between these two tribes.
1: We've been talking a lot about the Marshmen seeking knowledge of God through the stars and originating from the river. We have maybe a little bit lost track of the emphasis that East Wind places on communicating with God. It's not just seeking his knowledge. They want to talk to God, and that's what Sandwalker is for. He's going to be their conduit to talking to God. I would suggest that this implies that they think that they can get God to take action on their behalf, that the future is not already created, that if they can get their message to God, if they can tell God what they want, what they need, what their desires are, what's going on with them, that God can take action about that and help them in some way. But the Hill people think that it's all already foreordained, that God created everything that's going to happen all at once in the beginning when he created the universe, and there's no point in that that God is not some creature that we can ask for help, that we can seek help from. He is someone whom we should honor and venerate because of his position. He's not there to help us. He's above us, whereas the Marshmen seem to think of him as someone who's almost kind of their equal in status if they're superior in power.
0: That is the pride at play, right, which is the sin that leads to the fall of man, the, the belief that we are of equal or higher status than God. I will say there are some, some complications there. One is, in order for the hill people to operate as they do, they need to believe that the plan of the universe is perfect in some way. That the reason why you don't petition God for help is because he has already set out the path for you to walk, and that path will lead to his ultimate plan, his will being done, not your own personal glorification. The complication on the side of the marshmen is that they do not do anything, it seems, to affect the course of the river. If that is the, the predominant image that God writes messages on, either through the stars or they can look down on from God's perspective and see a certain message they need to decode from the world, that that is not something they can touch or mess with. And that is another reason, perhaps, why the river is so holy to them, is that it is the way God writes his messages to them, and they only need to get the right perspective to decode it. And their communication with God is through understanding his knowledge, as the blind man says, to see what God sees, to know what he knows and what he must do. They are looking for the right action to take in the future. And without God's knowledge, they feel abandoned in some sense.
1: When we started this episode, when we started this conversation, I was not 100% clear on what it was about the Marshmen's beliefs that the hill people deemed heretical, such that when they crop up among their own people, those people have to be killed. As we've been talking about it, it has become clear to me that it is entirely wrapped up in this notion that you can get God to change his mind about things, that God may not be omnipotent or omniscient, in the views of the marshmen, that's what is heretical to the hill people. And I think that we see that manifested in the way that they treat the river. And this might be a good time to move into talking about baptism in which the the river is, is central. Let's dig into baptism here, right? I think the last thing that we should talk about in the relationship between the abo theology and christianity is this view of the river and in particular the hill people's view of the river and just to remind people because it's now been i don't know an hour and a half uh, this is what sandwalker has to say about it we wash our children in the river because it signifies the purity of god the root earth of the trees, their fathers, is still upon them and should be washed away. And elsewhere, Sandwalker talks about how the marshmen defile God's purity with death. They defile God's purity by using it as an instrument of death. And I I think it is obvious here, right, that he is talking about a ritual that at least parallels baptism if it isn't actually baptism. And
0: I just want to clarify that that defilement by death happens twice explicitly in this text. And both times they are used to get what they want from the world, to take, not to give, not to make anything present for the world. The first is through some mysterious means, the birth of these twins is sacred and the Marshmen come and take one of them and murder the grandmother. And the second time is when they are perhaps upset that their attempt to go and capture the second twin because of Eastwind's failure as a dreamer fails. And so they have to set a trap for him knowing that he will experience the death of his people maybe at his own hand and need to avenge them. And so they're using the river to take from the world and manipulate the world to their own ends.
1: And that's clearly of vile, a disgusting violation of everything that Sandwalker and his people believe about the universe. I think to really make it clear where baptism maybe is something that's actually happening in the text, we should go through what baptism really is. And I think just to spare a little bit of time, let's just deal with this in the Catholic context, because Wolf is a Catholic, and it seems like the people of Saint-Croix also are largely Catholic. So according to the Catholic catechism, baptism is a sacrament, and its ritual functions as a part of a person's entrance into Christianity, right? It's it's an initiation, or it's, it's part of the initiation. When a person is baptized, whether as an infant or, or later, there are a number of ritual actions and speeches that accompany it, but the essential rite of the sacrament is being immersed in water three times. This can also be poured on a person's head, but the immersion, I think, is, is the preference. So it's a ritual washing, right? And it's not unlike what the hill people do, a ritual washing.
0: And in fact, some of the evidence for the Trinity in Scripture is found at Jesus's baptism by John the Baptist, right? The preeminent man of the story, the name is, is the one who baptizes Jesus. And you have present the water, the earth, the washing of the earth away from the body, and the dove, which is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. But that is also signified as breath and air Time and again in Scripture as well, and here you have the Trinity, maybe of the the hill people, of the essences of the hill people, as we've described it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the theology of baptism. Like, what's going on? What is the purpose of doing this? What does it do besides symbolize membership in the group? And there are several effects of baptism. There's the forgiveness of sins. These are your personal sins, but also the original sin committed by Adam and Eve, which we've talked about a little bit already, and we'll return to that in a moment, I expect. One also becomes a new creature. You become, uh, to quote the catechism, you become an adoptive son of God. You do also become a member of the church. And and this is something that confers an obligation on you, an obligation to live not for yourself, but to live for Christ, And one also gains access now to the sacrament of communion, which is to say the ritual of consuming the blood and body of Christ. This is a benefit, a boon that you get to counter the obligation. And I don't want to take us any further afield, but we've seen a lot of talk about consuming the blood and bodies of people in this story. And I think we're going to want to talk about communion maybe when we get to our our wrap-up episode. And the final thing that baptism does is it confers an indelible spiritual mark that once you're baptized, it is clear, at least spiritually, you are marked as having become a member of the church, having become a member of the body of Christ somehow.
0: I'm really glad you put it in those terms, particularly your last point, because this is exactly the way the shadow children talk about recognizing Sandwalker as a shadow friend. Something in him has changed that is not physical, it is a non physical change that allows him to sing their songs, to be recognized by them, and to be welcomed by them as one of them. There is, of course, the ritual washing of the child, of which every culture washes their children after they're born, but this one is particularly to remove the dirt of the earth the stain of the father on the child away. But then in Sandwalker's case, we get the second one where he learns the the songs of the shadow children that mark him spiritually in in a new way. And I still don't know if the shadow children are good or bad.
1: I didn't see this connection at all. That's another brilliant insight you've brought to this conversation tonight. Let's leave that on the table here. We'll come back to it probably in our wrap-up episode since we're getting really long in this one already. But a question that occurs to me immediately when you make this connection, one is we don't see the shadow children hanging around the Marshmen. The Marshmen are pretty clear that these are people who live on the outskirts of their civilization, who they keep out there intentionally, but who they manage as kind of barbarians on the fringes of their culture. Is it possible, and you don't have to answer this now, I'm just going to raise it, that the shadow children are hill people in some way who have done what St. John of the Cross is telling us to do? in the epigram of this story?
0: That's a very difficult question to answer because they say they're from another planet. Well, they say they're from the tail end of a, of a constellation, and that's the information we get. And because we know that this ability to dream can cast them from the stars, that that riding the fighting lizard is some great aspiration of the Marshmen, that maybe there is some spiritual transformation that has taken place that has turned something of this species into a new middle species between the full spiritual ascension, if this is Wolf's defined comedy, and (laughs) the mundane humanoid type? Maybe. But I can't give you a clear answer on that. There's something, though. I don't know if the shadow children are good or bad. I don't know if their plans or strengths or weaknesses are something to be relished or to be feared.
1: Well, I think we'll just pick this one up when we've got the end of the story, when we've got all of our information. we'll remember that I have raised this question real late in the game here tonight, and we'll uh, perhaps take it up. The question might be moot by the time we get to the wrap-up episode. We'll see.
0: So now that we've got the shadow children in play and and potentially their odd spiritual presence on this planet, their connection to God, the way the Marshmen recognize the importance of the constellation that they're from, yet disdain the shadow people, the way they mark other people spiritually. I guess my primary question is, I think we've done a pretty good job of explaining why we think the Marshmen are the proper villains of the story, and why Sandwalker may not just be the protagonist, but also the hero. I just want to know what you think about the shadow children in the context to try to tie all of this madness together, of Christian mysticism, of the unity with God, and of the long theological discussion we have, what role do the shadow children play in your mind?
1: I don't have any concrete answers for this right now, but I do wonder if we aren't being shown here two groups who have competing theologies or differing theologies, differing understandings of God the cosmos, how we should behave, how we should interact with the cosmos, how we should interact even perhaps with each other. We certainly have two competing views on on these subjects here. I have to wonder if the shadow children aren't being shown to us as kind of a third way and an alternative, if they aren't quietly in the background, almost as kind of silly, inconsequential fairies, the actual answer to the questions. I have to wonder if both the marshmen views on these questions and the Hill people views on these questions aren't wrong, and that the shadow children are the ones who are doing it right. And You know, just to leave on that note, I will bring up again that two times that we've seen the shadow children of three in the text, they've been engaging with something that could be considered to be the sacrament of communion, that they are ritually consuming food and blood within a community as a part of their group identity, and that they want Sandwalker to join them in that ritual now that they have marked him out now that perhaps he has this indelible spiritual mark. So I, I wonder if there's not something going on there that we might get some more about in the next and final section.
0: My view is a a little more sinister. And though we've seen the shadow children as these elfish type creatures, this trilogy of novellas, this first big novel of wolves, is concerned with the subsuming of one identity with another. And the way that the Shadow Children are pushing Sandwalker to become one of them more and more sets off warning bells in my ears about this whole series of stories about identity being taken over by another culture. But that is also what Christianity demands. And it is also a big problem of the arguments for colonialism. And Wolf is doing an enormous amount with these types of things in this story. So. I really think we need to finish this story to understand exactly what's going on. But until we get there, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha,
1: And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com
0: head on over to the Clay Temple Forums and just start a conversation with us. This was was a long discussion. We brought up a lot of things. And I am certain that there are are listeners of ours who have more expertise or better insight than we were able to provide on a number of these theological and philosophical issues. So I'm excited to learn what you thought about what we had to say.
1: Yeah, I feel like we only kind of scratched the surface of a number of these issues. And even though this is almost certainly going to be the longest episode we've ever released. If you are still with us after that, please remember that our patron poll opens tomorrow. So if you aren't already a patron, check it out. And uh, if you do, you'll be just in time to get our discussion of the Connie Willis Christmas Story Miracle, which is our December Patreon episode.
0: And just to remind you all that Wolf's own Christmas story, La Bafana, is up for selection in this vote.
1: Yeah, that's a story that we, we brought up when we were talking about alien stones, and it might actually be relevant to the conversation we just had tonight. It, it is about Christ being born on an alien world. But since I believe in democracy, I will not shill for that to get voted in, but it might end up being relevant to many of these conversations we've been having. next time we're going to finish a story by john v marsh and until then we greet you and say farewell